biblical theology. It's all our fields. That's the difference. Theology is our field. It's not just for the theologian, for the pastor, for the scholar. It's for all of us. So we need to fully understand what's happened. So Christ's ascension, small event in, in time scale, right? But massive, massive. Jesus' ascends, ascension is one of the great events in the life of Jesus and the life of the church it is described in a number of places. So here are the number of places. One is Luke 24, 50, 52. And he led uh, them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I don't know about you, that'd be kind of wild. Seeing like, you know, the Messiah just ascend into heaven. You know, like, you don't usually see that kind of thing. That might freak you out a little bit. Acts 1, 9 to 11, though, says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, Two men stood by them in white apparels, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Interesting. Now we have Mark 16, 19. I would expound a bit more on all these passages, but we have a lot of passages and a lot of stuff to go through today. So, and you'll see these passages again throughout the uh, study tonight. Mark 16, 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 4, 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who was passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. John six sixty two. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? This is hinting at his ascension here, prior to his actual ascension. So... It is also implied the ascension in Ephesians 1.20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's also in Philippians 2.9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Colossians 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So it's interesting how you see the Apostle Paul, you see Luke mentioning this, you see it mentioned in the Gospels. Another epistle, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Hebrews 1.3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And 1 Peter 3.22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having seen been made subject to him. Now we go where it was prophesied. I'm telling you, I didn't see all this stuff at first. When I started doing my study, I was like, whoa. It was prophesied in Psalm 16, 8 to 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 110, verse 1. My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. So, last week we went over the, res uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Shortly afterwards... Then you had the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we're going to go through the appearances after the resurrection. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared several times over a period of about 40 days. Now these appearances were temporary. So Jesus' appearance after the resurrections. He appeared at the empty tomb in John 20, 10 to 17. Remember, you guys don't have to take notes. If you guys want, I can give you the uh, PowerPoint. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13 to 35. Uh, to the ten of the disciples in Jerusalem, Luke 24, 36 to 49. And John 20, uh, 19 to 23. He appeared to the disciples with Thomas present, you know, doubting Thomas. John 20, 24 to 29. And in Galilee in John 21. So why should we study the ascension? The big part of scripture. So it's the essential link between the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Remember that. It tells us where Jesus went after he ascended. It tells us what happened after he arrived. It tells us where he is now and what he is doing there. Now let's go back to that first point. The Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, let's see. 
if we're supposed to be temples of the Holy Spirit, he had to leave for a helper to come, right? So then that helper is the Holy Spirit, so that we may be filled with the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So without all this and the prophecies coming to fulfillment, you don't have salvation for people. This was required. So it also tells us where he is now and what he's doing there. It tells us why he will come again. Because if he didn't leave, he can't come again, can he? Which soon we'll be going over the second advent of Christ. It explains a number of where in Old Testament which were uh, of immersed comfort to the early church who searched the scriptures to understand what was happening. Now we have facts regarding the ascension. So this is your apologetic for it. See, Jesus went up. He ascended on high. So the Greek, anabano, to rise from the depths of the heights. So the word actually is used 81 times uh, but most of these do not refer to Jesus' ascension, but merely to going up. For example, Jesus came up immediately out of the water during his baptism. He went up to the mountain in Matthew 5.1. And now Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, Matthew 20.17. He disappeared. In Acts 1.9, says he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Told you, that's pretty wild. Like you, you see the Messiah just ascend and then poof, he's gone. And the disciples were there. They were there for about three, three and a half years. And it's pretty crazy. So this means one moment they saw him and the other they didn't. So this shows how literal the event was. So this is important because... If it's just a figurative concept, and you'll see this later in our studies, that we need to take a literal approach to Scripture. It has to be very literal, historical, and grammatical. That's called a hermeneutic. So the hermeneutic must be, which is the analytical study of Scripture, the science and art of interpreting Scripture. We must take a literal approach, because when we don't take a literal approach, here's what happens. Yeah, you know, he ascended on high. That's very figurative. It means that God, Jesus is at the right hand, but he was never, you know, fully human. It's just a concept, right? And then Genesis becomes this allegorical concept, and then, then you have theistic evolution, which means that God created and then guided through the evolutionary process. Contradictory to what Scripture says, right? So if you take an allegorical approach to Scripture, you mess up all parts of Scripture. That's why your hermeneutic must be consistent. So you have to take the literal, grammatical, historical approach. So, so, so the Bible dying uh, uh, liberals love to deride the idea of Jesus' ascension. The ascension is not a myth or, nor a symbol. It was a literal, distinct event happens all the time. Actually, I was watching an interview one time. This woman uh, who claims to be a Bible scholar says that these stories in the Bible are just symbolic. So she's like, yeah, Moses, yeah, he wasn't a real, a real guy. He just, 
you know. So the Jewish people worshiping, or not worshiping him, but like revering him and worshiping the God of Moses, right? The Ten Commandments, how Israel became a nation again. All this stuff was just figurative. It was good stories. That was from a Bible scholar. So when someone claims to be a Bible scholar, be very skeptical. See, a cloud received him out of their sight. So it's not certain whether this was a literal cloud in the sky, which I'm inclined to believe. It may have been a spiritual phenomenon like a pillar of cloud, which you see in Exodus chapter 13, verse 22, which enveloped Jesus after he was a few feet off the ground. So we weren't there. We don't know exactly what it looked like. We'll be dogmatic where the Bible's dogmatic and stuff we don't know. That's what we just can think about it and talk about it. Now, his ascension was completely unexpected. So when the disciples asked their question in Acts 1-6, they had no idea it would be their last or that these appearances would come to an end. So remember, he was crucified. They're depressed for a few days, right? And then he rises again and then appears to them. So what is your automatic thought? Well, he's going to be there forever, right? Well, nope. He was only here for a time. So they therefore were not prepared for his final departure from the earth, even though he said, I am going there to the Father's right hand to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. They forgot that part. His ascension was very visible. They were watching in the New English translation, which is a translation I actually do agree with. Um, if you want to do some deep study, use the NET. Really good word studies. So this uh, further demonstrates that no faith was needed for this to be believed. They just saw it. See, unlike the resurrection, for which uh, there were no eyewitnesses, the ascension was visible to the naked eye. So no one saw him actually resurrect from the dead, but we could all see him, hey, after his resurrection and then him ascending. So it was a bodily ascension. It wasn't some spiritual thing. See, like the resurrection, Jesus arose bodily. It was a transformed body, yes, but it was the same Jesus, touch me and see me, a ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see I have in Luke 24, 39. This was this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, Acts 1, 11. Jesus' body remained his after he entered into heaven. It's still a physical body. At this moment is a man in glory, visible as ever to those in heaven, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5. And Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. Luke 24, 50 to 52. And he says, he ascended from as far as Bethany, but Bethany is at the Mount of Olives. Mark 11, 1. And 40 days after the resurrection, you have Acts 1, 3. It was a literal 40 days. Once again, if you take an allegorical approach, you say, well, you know, 
Not really 40 days. See, 40 days, once again, is a figurative number. You see it in other passages, like Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days. And, yeah, it's just a symbolic thing. It it doesn't really mean that. Because who could fast for 40 days? That's what people say. That's what the liberals say. When I say liberal, I'm talking about biblically liberal, not conservative in their theological mindset. So, it meant that the disciples only had eight days or so to wait in Jerusalem before the Spirit fell on them. So, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, but apparently the ascension came 40 days after the resurrection, not the Passover. If I, I urge you to study the resurrection and the Passover and uh, coming from the book of Leviticus and Exodus, you'll see some massive symbolism there. So, coincided with the time of Jesus' death. So the 40 days after the resurrection. Whether there is any significance in the number 40 is not certain. But the flood was the result of rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted, we just talked about it, 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew uh, 4.2. The significance of the ascension of Jesus. He came from heaven in the first place. So until his, the incarnation, he was the Lagos. Remember, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So you see it in John 1, right? The Lagos. The Word speaking into existence. He is separate from God, yet being God. And that actually in John 1, 1, you understand that you see the Trinity right there. Because you see... The distinction of the Logos with God, yet being God. That's a Trinitarian concept. And if you want to do another study, um, they, their primary language was Aramaic at the time. So they would have used the word Memra. And in the Aramaic Bible, which is the Targums, they actually kind of translate it, instead of where it say Yahweh, it would say the word of Yahweh. So they always made the distinction of the word and Yahweh. Interesting. And these were Hebrew scholars and Aramaic scholars. So he prayed, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John 17, 5. The ascension was the answer to Jesus' own prayer. He was now restored to the glory he had with the Father before the world even began. But there was an, an important difference. He was now there in a body. Interesting, because remember, we have Christ's deity. What's the other side? Christ what? Humanity, right? So what's that called? Myself and Pastor Jay have talked about it a lot. Hypostatic you, my man. He gets a prize today. Give him pizza. No. <laughs> but he was there in a body now. So before he entered the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was fully God without a body. Once he was in the womb, Mary, he became what? Flesh. John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
a body you have prepared for me, Hebrews 10, 5, and the eternal son returned to heaven. That's supposed to be a two. T-O. With a body he will have throughout the endless eons of eternity. See, at the ascension, he took his seat at the Father's right hand, Ephesians 1.20. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Jesus. See, the Father welcomed his son home and invited him to take his seat at the right hand of God the Father. By the way, in Psalms, well, Psalm 110, verse 1, that gets some wacky theology, just so you know. Some people start to say some weird stuff about this. Um, I'm not going to go into it because it actually gets too weird for me, and I'm like, yep, yeah, nope, that's bad hermeneutics again. So the term right hand was a symbol of power and authority. So the ascension that he took at the right hand uh, of the Father it was to show that Jesus was God and equal with God. So as the word he had uh, been from the beginning in John 1, 2, it was the only symbolic, it was not only symbolic but literal. Jesus is not only strategically at the right hand of God, but also at the right side of the Father, equality. This is important because you do have Jehovah's Witnesses which is interesting because I just dealt with a Jehovah's Witness Greek scholar. That was fun. That was a fun one. They have a problem with Jesus being God. They don't understand the concept because, you know, you go to the Shema. Oh, hero Israel, our Lord is one. So you have the unity of God. Yeah, he's one. However, he's, you see him in three separate persons, yet one essence. Now, are we supposed to fully understand the Trinity? No. There's really no good analogies because it's something that's outside of time, space, matter, something that we only understand. We don't understand that. However, that becomes a heresy. And don't get caught up in a ton of heresy. The ascension was a personal vindication. His vindication had been subjective uh, until then. Subjective. What he himself felt and knew, it was by the Spirit alone, 1 Timothy 3.16. He got his sense of purpose and identity by the witness of the Spirit who he had without limit in John 3.34. This gave him all the fulfillment he needed despite his being rejected. Objectively, he had been rejected by the authorities of Rome and Israel which we actually just talked about right before uh, we started tonight. Most Christians, you know that they, won't, they don't even know why Jesus was hated? And this is, this is my daughter, who's two and a half years old. She says, Daddy, why did they hate Jesus so much? He was so nice. Two and a half years old, I was like, whoa. That was a good question. And most people don't know that. Most Christians really don't know. They're like, well, you know, they really didn't like him because people followed. I'm telling you, this is from Christians. Well, people followed him. Um, he said salvation was only through him. I'm like, yeah, he, he did say that. But you know that they thought it was blasphemy because he claimed to be God, right? 
the, that's what the Jews hated him for, it was blasphemy. And then also the Romans hated him because Caesar Augustus decided to embark on this um, concept that it was, it was an Asian concept that emperors were divine beings. So he wanted the emperors to be divine, quote, in the people's eyes, so they would be what? Worshipped. So you had two, two sets of haters. You had the Romans and the Jews. That's why he was crucified. And that's why they hated him. And you notice that people really hate the concept of Christianity because they say it's exclusive. Do you know everything's exclusive? Do you know that if you are in the major leagues, it's exclusive? Do you know if you're in any group, it is what? Exclusive. Really? If you're an engineer, do you know that's exclusive, right? Because not everyone's an engineer, right? Not everyone's a nurse. Things are exclusive. How about this? Those who are married, right? Well, so ladies, some other girl comes up to your husband and says, or your boyfriend, that's my man. That's an exclusive relationship, isn't it? Or you go to somebody and say, hey, that's my dad, and you're not. That's kind of weird, right? It's exclusive, isn't it? Well, if we lived in a relativistic world, right, with no absolutes, that's what you get, as ridiculous as that sounds. So Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, those are big absolute claims. This is why we have to understand Scripture and how absolute it is. Everything comes from here. Now, in heaven, it was an open and objective vindication. So the Father vindicated Jesus by giving him his seat at the right hand of God. The, angle, the angels uh, and saints witnessed this, so it was objective. But he is still being vindicated here below by the Spirit that is in us. Romans 12, 3. We know that his vindication is objective, but no one can know this unless they have the Holy Spirit. So the question, one question I'm going to add to the end, I kind of, I was debating on whether we should add it, but we're going to add it. Can you know the truth without the Holy Spirit? That'll be a three-hour discussion. Have fun. <laughs> Go get some Wawa. So the ascension was his exaltation, Acts 2.33 and Philippians 2.9. In heaven, Jesus was given the honor that had been due him all along. Here below, he was despised and rejected by men in Isaiah 53.3. You see that, you know, the suffering servant. Here below, he was the stone which was rejected. Acts 4.11. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead, he showed himself only to those who had been believers. Interesting, right? 
goes back to our question, could you really know the truth if you don't have the Holy Spirit? On one occasion, he appeared to more than 500, 1 Corinthians 5, 16, but never once did he appear before his accusers. So this actually is a good apologetic here because two or more people cannot have the same hallucination. You know that, right? You know, if two people are taking something like LSD or something, they can't see the same thing. It ain't going to happen. So if they do see the same thing, that means it's real. So imagine 500. So if you ever, uh, I forgot the name of the book exactly. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's by Gary Habermas. He's actually he's done more work on the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other person. He is, I don't know if he's still a professor at Liberty, but I took apologetics with him at Liberty University. He is? Good. Gary's good. Gary, that guy. But you know, he actually talks like a normal guy. He doesn't talk like a scholar. But you should understand this because more than 500 people saw him. So now you have eyewitness accounts. So why are eyewitness accounts very important? Anyone know? If you see someone commit a crime and you report it, now you are an eyewitness. Yes? Okay, so eyewitness accounts are very important. And that's what science is based off of, something that's observable and repeatable. You need to be able to observe it. So if you're able to observe something, and 500 people said that happened, you would what? Believe that happened. What's the problem today with that, though? If it wasn't caught on video, it didn't happen. That's your automatic assumption, right? Is it on Instagram? Is it on TikTok? It didn't happen then. Well, unfortunately, they didn't have TikTok or Instagram or any kind of phone or recording device, but they went and wrote it down in scripture, and they have the four eyewitness accounts. All right, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he appeared to 500 people after his resurrection. If that doesn't blow your mind like, whoa. They saw, a bunch of people saw him die, get put in a tomb, a massive stone rolled there in front of it, and then afterwards... By the way, they, they shoved a spear after he was, they shoved literally a spear into him. By that point, he would have bled out. Yet he rose and looked fine. Like, yes, he had his holes and things, but he was looked fine. Going through walls, eating. So, let's move on. I digress. <laughs> Jesus exalted in heaven, not on earth except by believers. He sits at the right hand of God, which shows his sovereign authority, Hebrews 1.3. This position is not only shows his dignity, but is proof that his atonement is complete and final. Hebrews 10.12. This was the ultimate seal of approval by the Father. See, the Father, known as Yahweh by the Jews, of ancient Israel gave to Jesus his very own name. They are equal. The ascension was the beginning of his reign as King Jesus. You know, when you talk to people and they say, oh, Jesus the Christ, that's his last name, right? It's very scary. 
So we understand that is his, what, his title, right? Good. And he's king, Jesus. He is the king. He's on his throne, and we are to be obedient to him. He was rejected partly for this reason, being the king of the Jews. Pilate had a nose <laughs> prepared and put it on the cross, and it's read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, when they asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? You have rightly said so, depending on what translation you use. Well, he claimed to be king, the king of the Jews. He claimed to be God. He accepted worship. Wow. He's either a massive blasphemer or he's God. His reign began in heaven in God's right hand. This reign will last until he has put all his enemies under his feet in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. And this will happen after the person to be saved is saved, the last person. So this kind of goes into a, an area of theology of the Arminian versus Calvinistic argument. Limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. You guys know what I'm talking about? you don't know, simple. Some people hold to the fact that Jesus only died for the elect. That's limited atonement. Unlimited atonement says that Jesus died for the whole world. So we're going to rephrase certain things because I thought they were half right, both of them. I think he died for the sins of the whole world, hands down. There was no blood wasted. His atonement was for the entire world. 1 John 2, 2. He did not die for the propitiation for us, but for the whole world. Now, the Calvinistic argument would say the word cosmos, the word for world, is, could mean a group of people or a nation. Don't know where they got cosmos and group of people and nation, but okay. What do you do with 1 John 2, 2? Well, if you want to make a five-point Calvinist a four-point, go there. Which I don't have a problem with a lot of points in Calvinism, but I have that problem. Now, he died for the sins of the world, yet the receivers of that atoning sacrifice, the, the recipients of eternal life, is limited. So we have to have correct thinking in this, right? It's not, well, because if it's unlimited in the sense that everyone is saved, that means you're a universalist and then you're a heretic. That's pretty much what it means. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm going to get peed after you. No. <laughs> but he did die for the sins of the whole world, yet those who put their faith in him will have eternal life, right? So it is limited to the people that will be saved. So some people get that mixed up. Some people stay in their camps and say, no, this is the only way we can think. That's not true. And if you want more information on that, here's a book by Norman Geisler called Chosen But Free. Write that down. So, so one day he will be openly and objectively vindicated by all in heaven and on earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation 19.16. His ascension began, began his role as our great high priest, Hebrews 4.14. It is here that the Blood he shed on the cross is applied. His blood was shed for the sins of the world, Hebrews 2 9. 
And First John 2, 2, if you want to put that one there too. It is applied and made effectual by the intercession of Christ. John 17, 9. And the intercession began his role as our great high priest. So Peter said, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear in Acts 2.33. It was at the right hand of God that he began interceding for us. Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the ascension began his role as our great high priest again, right? So he is there as the only mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2.5. Why is this a problem? Well, many people in certain, they claim Christianity, because there's three main forms of Christianity. We know those. You have the Protestant side, right? You have the Catholic side, and then you have the Orthodox side. In Catholicism, you could pray to whom? Saints, right? Mary's a co-redemptrix. This becomes an issue because if Jesus is the only way, then why will we pray to other people? It makes no sense. And especially being Mary as a co-redemptrix means that she could redeem you. That's not true at all. Jesus says, once again, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This has to be consistent in your theology. It can't be by any other person. It can't be through a pastor. It can't be through your best friend. It can't be through your parents. You have one mediator, and that's Christ alone. Now, this will continue until he returns to earth a second time, his second advent, his second coming. So the significance of the ascension for us. Don't worry, Rome's done. See, after Jesus disappeared in the clouds, here's what happened with his, the disciples. So they waited. They walked to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, Acts 1.12. They stayed in Jerusalem, and then they went, uh, when they went up into the upper room where they were staying in Acts 1.13, and they worshiped and praised God continually, Luke 24, 52-53, uh, and then they prayed. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples, Acts 2, 1 to 4. All this was a consequence of two things. Jesus' uh, advice to tarry not to leave Jerusalem, and Jesus' intercession at the right hand of God. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples again, right? So when Peter preached, which came as a result of having to refute the charge that they were drunk on new wine, I wonder what the old wine was, and I wonder how they described the new wine. I wonder if they had a mega pint. 
That, uh, that was a funny thing, though. Anyway, his, his sermon was preoccupied with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Interesting how he was constantly making a point and, and arguing through his sermons. You notice Paul does that too. He argues through his sermons and his letters. He argues. Peter's arguing in a good way, and they're making points. Psalm 16 was applied to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Acts 2.25. And Psalm 110 was explicitly quoted to show that its fulfillment was in Christ's ascension. Now the significance for us now, that we never forget where Jesus is now. It's huge. We tend to get wrapped up in our day-to-day life and our day-to-day problems. We forget that our high priest, our mediator, our intercessor, our advocate is in heaven. He is the king on his throne at the right hand of the Father. It is one thing for the earliest disciples to claim that Jesus was raised from the dead They then had to explain why, if he was raised from the dead, he did not turn up and prove to all that he is alive. See their reply, he has been exalted at God's right hand. So we have to realize that Jesus is alive and well in heaven and looks the same as he did last seen by the naked eye. That's Hebrews 13.8. We pray to the Father through the mediator, the man in glory, 1 Timothy 2.5. The ascension of Christ is our basis for prayer, John 14.14. The reason we have access to God is because Jesus is there interceding for us, Hebrews 7.25. In John Calvin's words, the Son beckons the attention of the Father to himself to keep his gaze away from our sins. Wow. Colossians 3.1 If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And Ephesians 2.6 And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a close connection between Christ's ascension and his second coming. Although the parallel should not be drawn too far, it has been noted that the similarities between the ascension and the second coming. The ascension was unexpected, so to is Christ's second coming. He's coming as a thief, right? A thief in the night. Matthew 24, 44, 2 Peter 3.10. He passed behind a cloud. He will come with the clouds. His ascension was visible, so to every eye will see him. So his ascension was visible, now everyone's going to see him come, so it's going to be visible. 
He ascended bodily. He will return bodily. This is the same, Jesus, Acts 1, 10 to 11. Some go as far as to contend that he will even return to the very place from which he ascended, Zechariah 14, 4. I'm not going to say that he will. I'm just saying that's what people say. Here's our conclusion. That was fast. Christ is alive and well. He has been totally vindicated in heaven. And one day every knee will bow to me, who's Christ, and every tongue shall confess to God. Romans 14, 11. So, as we break up into our groups, we have two questions here and we have that third question. Well, we'll go with the first, that make that the first. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, would you know the truth? Now, what would be the consequences of Jesus not ascending? That's the next question. And why is the ascension significant to us today? Break them to groups of four or five. We'll leave that up there. And just remember, though, one question about the Holy Spirit. <laughs>